the Dragonlance Nexus is proud to present the Dragonlance Canticle. Greetings, friends and fellow companions, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Dragonlance Canticle. Putting the wild into the Feywild, I am Trampus Whiteman. And I am Megan Jay. And I am Weldon Tim. And I'm Tim Shiplett. And that's our cast of characters today. They are not Fey Mild, they are Fey Wild. And we are wild about the heroes of Kryn Unearth Arcana, or are we? That's a good question. That's going to be our topic of discussion today. And uh, I think we're going to get right into it this time. So what's first on our plate here, Megan? To address what you said about whether we are wild or not about this, this new Unearthed Arcana, I wrote in my notes here that today we are going to be discussing the newest Dragonlance Unearthed Arcana, which may be the light at the end of the tunnel that Dragonlance fans have been waiting for, or it may be a gnome-driven locomotive coming straight for us. I think it kind of depends upon who you are in the community and who the target audience is supposed to be. I know a lot of long-term fans have had a few misgivings, but some of these changes could be, in fact, designed more for you know regular 5th edition fans to try to get them in. Right. And there's there's no such thing really as a fifth edition Dragonlance fan because it only exists within the Dragonlance Nexus and Tasselhoff's pouches of everything. There isn't sort of a community of, you know, people who have been playing Dragonlance with the fifth edition rules for years and years like there has been with Forgotten Realms or Eberron. So it's going to be it's interesting. It's like, can Dragonlance bring these two worlds together, the worlds of the old school players and the worlds of the, the newcomers? and make it make it work for both groups. That's kind of how I feel about it. I feel positive about it, but I feel like the wider community is very, very divided over it right now. Yeah, I think that's interesting because that was the design conceit of 5th edition from the very beginning was to uh, have it be a unifying edition that, you know, you, if you like old school play, this will work. If you like kind of the newer style of play with, you know, third and fourth edition, you can use fifth edition to do that. And I, I don't know. I don't know if they're still on that track, right? The, you know, I think that is maybe like the original design conceit. And now they've kind of st- said, you know, fifth edition is its own animal now. Well, speaking of speaking of being their own animal, let's jump right into Kender. Uh, the Kender are a race which, as as we know, maybe not every listener would know, but Kender are a race which existed uh, originally in Dragonlance. They're sort of a Dragonlance exclusive race, and they have not existed since since third edition at this point. But they're kind of an offshoot of a halfling, and they are presented as a player option for a race here in the Dragonlance Unearthed Arcana Heroes of Kryn, and They've made quite a few changes to the abilities and the lore of the Kender. I'll go quickly through through what's offered here. So a Kender is a, is a small humanoid. They have an ability called Brave, which gives them an advantage on saving throws um, to end the fr- to avoid or end the frightened condition. And they have an ability called Taunt, which lets them taunt an enemy and uh, decrease the en- or to give the enemy disadvantage on attack rolls. And they also have an ability that they get at third level called Kender Ace, uh, which I think means like Ace in the hole or Ace up your sleeve. I think that's what the Ace is referring to. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! This isn't a World War One uh, flying ace, kind of like Snoopy from Peanuts. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that would be fun. Flying Kender, I love that idea. 
Um, so the Kender Ace ability lets you um, pull an object out of one of your pouches. And these objects are considered to be magical in nature, and they disappear after one hour. For examples, you can get some gold pieces, a simple weapon, an item adventuring of adventuring gear, trinket from the trinkets table, a crowbar or grappling hook, or a tool, a tool set. And you pull it out of your pouch, you have it for an hour, and then it vanishes. And obviously, this is a big, a big difference from how the Kender were originally conceived. Because in this new conception, Kender have a, a magical, a connection to the Feywild, which I don't think even existed back in second edition or back in, definitely not in first edition when the Kender were created. So this is a brand new idea. Well, yes and no. They, they trace back the Feywild to a module from first edition, I think, uh, something like Beyond the Crystal Cave or something like that. But it was such a background thing and didn't become its own real fully fleshed thing until fourth edition, if I remember right. Yeah, and this almost feels a little, maybe a little bit tacked on is how I would say. It's, it's oh, by the way, Kendra are now connected to the Feywild. Well, how? What does that mean? Are they from the Feywild? Do they have a, they have a special phone line that connects them to the Feywild? Call one eight hundred Feywild. No, it's it's a big red phone with one button on it, like in the Batcave, right? Yeah, I think what they did, or they they try to do, is I think they were trying to feel like the origin of Kender being somewhat related to chaos. If you go deep into Dragonlance history here, the Kender are supposed to be uh, related to the gnomes that are related to the Gwajin of Gargat. And that gray gem created gnomes and altered gnomes into creating lords and kinder. So if you link chaos into something related to the Feywild, then that's your linking connection. But it's a little bit a reach without, you know, more description, more fluff getting you there. And that's between like a conversation with me and Sean McDonald, Chipper Snipperdoo, who um, basically handles and writes the encyclopedia on the internet. Um, and that was his idea of like, okay, we can play it that way if that's what Wizards of the Coast wanted to do. Your mileage may vary, uh, listeners. If you feel that that works, then go with it. But I consider it like this is really tacked on. Right. I think there's two other things that work here too. First of all, I think they're trying to avoid negative stereotypes. You know, the idea being we don't want a race of natural thieves. So I think they're trying to avoid that. And the other thing, too, is one one of the criticisms about Kinder I've heard over the years is that they're silly or goofy, you know. And so now they're saying, oh, it's it's the whimsy of the Feywild. That's why they are that way. And I I kind of get that part because... You know, whimsy ties in real well with the Feywild. And I've, I've seen Kinder referred to as whimsical in prior editions too. So that works, but I, I, I don't know. I, I'm real torn on this. There, there's certain things about this I like, but overall, I'm thinking it just throws out, you know, 40 years of history and, you know, it kind of misses the mark on the feel and. You know, would they be better served if they portrayed Kinders? They've always been portrayed and then had a sidebar to say, and here's what Kinder are, here's what Kinder aren't. Never ever steal from your own party. And don't be a, you know, don't be a jerk. <laughs> I feel like they almost worked backwards with this. The, the idea was 
okay, we want to have Kender in this game, but we want to avoid this historical problem of Kender stealing from their own teammates and causing all kinds of problems within the dynamic of the group. Okay, so instead of having the Kender stealing from stealing physical objects from other people, now these physical objects are just appearing in their pouches out of nowhere. And then they, they vanish after one minute or after one hour because you can't have a Kender just pulling five D six gold pieces out of his pouch over and over and over again. But it kind of it kind of creates more confusion. It kind of creates more problems than it solves because, you know, what happens if you've got five D six gold pieces and you and you use it to spend it on something? <laughs> It just disappears. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody would ever sell anything to a Kender. How is a Kender character supposed to buy anything? And then you can get these you can get these weapons. Well, what if you pull out a weapon and it's not something that you have? Um, it's not something useful. Or you pull out a, a crowbar when you need gold or something. But I think they worked backwards to say, well, okay, so how do Kender get all this stuff? We want Kender to have this ability where they pull this stuff out of nowhere. How do they have that stuff if they aren't taking it from other people? Well, okay, it's coming from the Feywild. You know, they stick their hand down into their pocket and their pocket has a magical portal to the Feywild. And then they grab some gold and pull it back out again. And I think using this Feywild is just how they rationalized using making this feature magical. You guys, uh, do you see the irony in all that? We're trying to, we're trying to, as a goal, make races all, you know, positive. And that means, you know, not all Kender should be the stereotypical, you know, kleptomaniacs. So if you play under the rules, you're now reinforcing the idea of some sort of magical ability like this, or kleptomania. And I would go completely off, off that completely. Like, for example, um, role playing with um, Travis and Tim, uh, Kendra, whose background is their clan hates Kendra fever. It's, it's bad for the entire race to be viewed this way. And so they're acting as a group to go out there and bring these Kendra thieves in, or at the very least, work toward getting anything that's borrowed back to the original owner. So I barely play the Kinder Pouch rules that you would find in the Dragonlance Adventures or in the um, Pouches of Everything. Yeah, well, let's jump over. Let's jump over to the Pouches of Everything and talk about it. Just in case anybody doesn't know, Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything is a fifth edition supplement for Dragonlance that was created by the Dragonlance Nexus. It's available for free as a PDF on the at DragonlanceNexus.com, and it gives you basically everything that you need to play uh, a traditional Dragonlance game in 5th edition, and Tassel's Pouches of Everything has its own rules for Kender, including rules for Afflicted Kender, who is ba- which are basically Kender, Kender but without the whimsy, if you want to put it that way. Ed calls them Emo Kender. Emo Kender, yep, exactly. I, I love that. I, I do a Google search sometime for Emo, and you will get plenty of inspiration. Yeah, so the Kender ability in the way that it's presented in Tasselhoff's Pouches of Everything is basically you just, you, you roll um, a D100 and you get whichever item appears on the list. There isn't this notion of it's coming from the Feywild or it's coming from here or there. It's, they just have it. And then it's sort of up to the player how they want to present that. You know, you could have a Kender who's a thief and has all these things because they stole them. You could also have a Kender who's a collector and has just collected these things legally or collected them from their dungeon crawling. And, and a lot of these things aren't valuable. So it wouldn't be hard to for a Kender to have these things. Kender don't collect precious valuables. 
and magical items and jewels. They collect just knickknacks that they like. I've heard people use the rules in this nexus, the 100 trinkets um, that are in this thing, and relaying it off of the Dragonlance Adventures module, they'll swap and replace cool knickknacks on their adventures in place of stuff that they have in this in this ritual. So you can pull off a well-known backstory. Chuck put together this great list, and... You know, it it is kind of a throwback to Dragonlance Adventures where there was a long kinder pouch grab list there. If you look through, there's a lot of fun things in there with a lot of flavor. And then toward the end, or, or it's the very last one, roll uh, on Magic Table A in the Dungeon Master's Guide, page 144. Unless you roll a 100 <laughs> on this list, I mean, unless you're really creative, uh, the thing that you pull out isn't very useful. And I think what Watsy's doing with his Kinder Aces ability is saying it can be fun and flavorful and you can have whatever you want in your pockets. But if you need something and you want to do a pouch grab, they want it to be something that is useful. And I don't think we necessarily have to tie it all back to magic, but I do like the idea of you get one simple weapon with the light property or, you know, some type of adventuring gear that's no more than one gold piece and no more than one pound. You know, that in in those cases, you've got like choices that you can choose, you know, to choose from and it a more likely chance that the thing that you're going for, the thing that you find is going to be useful in some creative way. So I really do I like the, the Kinder Ace's ability. I think it could use a name change and, you know, stop referring to it as a, a magic kind of connection. But outside of that, I kind of like it. I would get rid of the 5d6 gold pieces because I don't think that's very useful either. So I think that just complicates things. Really, it does. Yeah. I would like to put magic table or magic item table a back on to this list somewhere i think that would be fun um but i would also weight the chances of rolling on that more like maybe do a d8 and like like eliminate the 5d6 gold pieces so now you only have five things and then you add the magic type uh magic item table a as much as i love the the big long d100 list in Tasloff's pouches, I, th- I think this Kinder Aces ability is on the right track of how to make that ability useful to the player. So let's jump over to Sorcerer subclass, uh, Lunar Magic. So this is a new subclass that's presented in the Heroes of Kryn Unearthed Arcana. Uh, it's a Sorcerer subclass that basically allows players to draw their power from the moon, and it grants them certain abilities depending on the phases of the moon. So for Kryn specifically, Dragonlance fans will know that Kryn has three moons, a, a silver moon, a black moon, and a red moon. And these moons determine the nature of the magic that a certain magic user um, is drawing upon. So a, a white robe, a good magic user draws their magic from the silver moon, an evil magic user draws their magic from the black moon. And this is kind of an integral part of the lore of Dragonlance, and it's sort of integral to the mechanics as well. So I think it's a great idea that they've tried to include this here. And they've also done it in such a way that you can use this subclass even when you're not on Kryn. So if you're playing the game in the Forgotten Realms, you like this subclass, you want to use it, but your world doesn't have the silver, red, and black moons that Kryn does. It gives you this alternative option, which is called Lunar Embodiment, that lets you choose whether you're going to draw upon the aspect of the full moon, the aspect of the new moon, or the aspect of the crescent moon. 
and it doesn't necessarily have to be that lunar cycle at the at the time that you're casting the spell. So you could, in theory, use crescent moon spells even when it's a full moon. Yeah, see, I kind of like this ability. Yeah, you know, the traditional moon magic feature that we've seen in first through third edition has wizard's magic uh, waxing and waning as you go on through the moon cycle. So half of the month, it's just normal. A quarter of the month, you're having a ball. And then a quarter of the month, uh, everything sucks. So I think Watsy's trying to get away from that idea of, of, you know, one, having to track everything because i know that just it, it's something extra it's it's not very fun to do as a gm <laughs> keeping track of the phase of the moon if the brand manager was doing his or her job right, there would be all sorts of additional accessories i really think you know okay let's bring back the dragonlance calendars from the days of old and let's put the moon phases on that thing so the DM never has to worry about it. I can just look up, like, this is the calendar data point your adventure is going. There's the moon phase. And I never need to track anything ever because I can just look it up in this nice calendar with all this cool art that I just have to buy now as a collector. But even so, players aren't going to want to have their spells weakened depending on the phase of the moon. Because what if you're doing a one-shot that takes place over the course of one day and that happens to be on the day that the moon is waning? then you just suck for that whole event. Nobody wants that. Right. So what I like about the Lunar Sorcerer is that it's very flavorful. Now, I do think it's a little confusing on the moon phase thing. That could probably be worded a little better. And and I know some people don't like the fact that this is something that could uh, be taken into other worlds. But, you know, to me, it's more of a good utility if it can you know, like if you play in Exandria, they have two moons there. Surprisingly, a white and a red one. Mm, where'd they get that idea from? <laughs> I hear they're Dragonlance fans, but um, nah, it's all good. But, you know, like, uh, or, or uh, Forgotten Realms has a bunch of moons. Eberron has a bunch of moons. You know, why not? My two complaints about this, I I really love this this subclass in general. If I was going to play in a Dragonlance game, this is probably what I would pick to play as. But I do have two two issues, and they're they're relatively minor issues, but I do think they're relevant. The first is that you can get an ability at six level called Waxing and Waning that lets you change. No, I'm sorry. It's the the original lunar embodiment feature that you get at level one. It lets you change the phase of the moon that your magic's going to be associated with every time you finish a long rest. So if you wake up from your long rest, you decide, okay, today I'm going to use the full moon spells and the new moon phase and you get access to certain spells. I think that should be every time you level, you pick the phase that you want to stick with rather than every time you finish a long rest, because I think it's just a little bit complicated, especially for the DM. And also, I think the full moon and the new moon aspects are clearly stronger than the crescent moon aspect. Crescent moon gives you bonuses to divination and transmutation spells. Does, does anybody really like using divination and transmutation spells? Not a lot. I haven't seen a whole lot of use for them in-game. In new moon is obviously the one to go for because it's evocation and necromancy spells. Well, yeah, blowing stuff up. I mean, that's where I'm at. Yeah. But if you associate full moon with the white robes of Dragonlance, new moon with the black robes of Dragonlance, and then crescent moon with the red robes, well, nobody's going to want to play a red robe because you don't get cool spells, you don't get neat abilities. And I would want to play a red robe, and I just feel like that's it's kind of underpowered if you play by these rules. 
I guess so. Yeah, the, I, I see what I'm looking at it right now, and I see what you mean as far as the spells that you get and the associations with the schools. It's interesting. Each of the orders traditionally has an association with two schools of magic, right? So, you know, white robes used to be divination and abjuration. So knowledge and protection, essentially. And it seems like they're taking, you know, red robes had theirs and black robes had theirs. But it seems like they're taking that concept and applying it to these moon phases. I don't know. I I, I do like the idea that you can change it with a long rest. I'm not totally opposed to that. But to your point, the spells that you get, it's like every time I want to do something different, on a different day, I have to delete a spell off my spell list and then add another one. Just practically, it seems disadvantageous to pick a different phase. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, you get you get access to all the spells. The only difference is that if you're a full moon aspect sorcerer, you can cast one of them without using a spell slot, if that's the aspect that you're using. For example, if you choose full moon aspect, you can cast fairy fire once without using a spell slot. But if you wanted to cast dissonant whispers you have to cast it as just you would normally oh i see what you mean yeah okay well strike that then i have no complaint (laughs) just looking at it i i love it and i want to play it like now but there's one other thing we should note and that is that this is a departure from sorcery as we've known it in dragonlands with uh, the magic of the fifth age what we would call primal sorcery or wild sorcery it was a you know, back in third edition, and this all stems from the um, appendix from Dragons of a Vanished Moon, you know, it set magic up to where there were four types of magic. You had both arcane and divine, and within each of those, you had focused, which meant of the gods, and ambient, which meant of the world. And it, it seemed to be a model that served us well at the time on reflection. I'm kind of wondering if, well, for 5th edition, I think it's dated, and kind of wondering if we should have gone that way or not. But really, what I look at is, and I, I might be doing a segue here into another topic, so I apologize if I do, but what we're looking at is Wizards of the Coast is looking at the Wizards of High Sorcery and saying, okay, we want all of our arcane classes to be able to be in Dragonlance at any given time, not just during certain time periods, because that's a mess to jumble. And we want players to go in with their favorite arcane class and be able to join the Wizards of High Sorcery and have some fun. But now they're no longer just wizards in the group, so now we've renamed them the Mages of High Sorcery. I know some folks have not liked that move at all. Personally, I love it. I think it's about time. Certainly, if I'm thinking I want to play a Sorcerer in Dragonlance, I'd rather play the Lunar Sorcerer here, you know, wearing white or red or black robes, being part of the Orders, than I would say play in an academy sorcerer or a um, legion sorcerer in the fifth age only. Right. Yeah. I see what you're saying, Trampus. And I I think I kind of agree with you. And I feel like if my suspicion is correct, and they're going to be focusing on the War of the Lance, the Age of Despair kind of classic setting for Dragonlance. Of course, Jeremy Crawford said that's the only story they have or whoever it was that said that. Hi, Chris. You're welcome to join us in our uh, Dragons on the River of Time game. Anytime. Love to have you, buddy. (laughs) Absolutely. Anytime. 
I think they missed an opportunity to just let the, if, if I'm correct that they're going to stick with that focus and have these things in it, like the lunar sorcerer, I think it would make more sense that the wizards of high sorcery change to the mages of high sorcery in the fifth age when the wizards themselves are not as powerful as they used to be and that there are a bunch of sorcerers running around. I think that just makes more sense. I agree with you, but at the same time, I find these um, sorcerers very, uh, very um, favorable to the War of the Lands. I would call them renegades to those traditionalist wizards that are in this group. You know, wizard magic was around. Everyone knows about it. You know, and everything. But if you wanted to use the sorcerer class in uh, an era like this, the fluff would be explaining that there are these group of um, magic users who don't follow the rules of the wizards of the high sorcery. There's there's even a book, um, Renegade Wizards, um, a novel that details these people, wildlings, who are using a different form of magic. And, you know, the politics of it all in that book goes right down to it. You know, the traditionalists set up a trap for those sorcerers and things go south really badly. And this is the untold story of Parsalian and what they went through, you know, to turn the Wizards of High Sorcery into what it was when Raceland got there. You can easily use this sorcerer as um, a thing that can be in Dragonlance during that time because it's obviously powered and affected by moon magic. The I can easily see the magic god being involved in trying to corral these um, sorcerers and kind of like push them toward becoming wizards, but their entrance into understanding magic is this way. And you can create a character that kind of exists, but he's kind of like low profile compared to someone like Grace. You know, he's not gonna he's not gonna announce himself because he knows there's gonna be wizards that will take notice. And you can play renegade quote unquote wizards like this. It, it's doable. I think that in general even the most diehard Dragonlance fan, we all kind of need to realize that if Watsi is going to create a Dragonlance setting, they're going to make it work for every class that they have right now in 5th edition. And they're going to make all the subclasses work as well. So it's not going to be like, well, you can't play um, an aberrant mind sorcerer because there's there's no beholders in Dragonlance, for example. Yeah, there are. Are there? Well, technically, he was a black rope who got transformed, but, you know... He's about to make a cameo in a Nexus product. <laughs> One of my gripes about um, Dragonlance is when people say, this isn't supposed to be in Dragonlance, and that's not supposed to be in Dragonlance. And they'll cite things, and I'm like, there's examples of that. You know, I was told once there's no vampires in Dragonlance, and I'm like, really? There's this guy named Krill Shadestalker who disagrees with you. So the the thing is, is with Dragonlance, we have this problem. We exclude way too much, and we we land up sounding like gatekeepers, which I don't want to do. I want people to come in and say, "Hey, this is fun. I love the setting." the The things that we we haven't allowed traditionally have been uh, lycanthropes which makes sense because of the moons and there are workarounds for that orcs because orcs who have traditionally been foot soldiers, as we've seen in Lord of the Rings, they're now replaced with draconians. Um, and there's a third thing. 
the drow. Drow, yeah. Drow, which, you know, that I'm certain will be addressed at some point. And then depending upon the source book, depending upon the era, psionics. But that's a topic I've gone down a thousand times before. So, you know, it's the buy-in. It's like, if I come to Dragonlance, do I want to read one trilogy of books and be able to play? Or do I want to read 20 books to get to the current time period to figure out how we went from Wizards of High Sorcery to Mages of High Sorcery? Dragonlance is a state of mind, not just a collection of lore, in my opinion. There was a quote I saw from Margaret Weiss that said she was describing Dragonlance and she said it's a story of love and friendship against a backdrop of war. I think that you make any of these changes, what matters, no matter what the changes you make are, is that you keep that Dragonlance spirit. And that spirit is more than just, oh, you can't be a warlock because warlocks aren't our renegades or whatever. Or you can't be a, you can't be this kind of sorcerer because there's only ambient sorcery in the Dragonlance setting. We need to get past, past that and think about the future of Dragonlance. You know, we'll remember the past and read the books and read the the old game settings and enjoy them, but we want Dragonlance to continue into the future, not be shackled by the past. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right. I I do think that, especially if you were around for first edition Dragonlance and you played first edition, second edition, and all of that, you're used to having even third edition. You're used to having things spelled out for you very specifically. You do this, it looks like this, and the result is this thing, right? And and it's very specific. Whereas in 5e, they leave a lot up to the imagination. You know, even with weapons, they're like, if you want a weapon that's not on the list, just use the stats for the weapon and call it something else. You know, if you want a katana, it's just a longsword. So just use the longsword stats, call it a katana, right? And, I mean, there's a lot of things like that, a lot of flavor stuff like that. So, um, and I, I think that's what people are pushing against when Wizards is Wizards of the Coast is trying to make Dungeons & Dragons accessible to every type of table. People who are used to being told specifics are, you know, they, they feel defensive about that. I don't know. I, I don't understand the attitude, but I do understand the feelings, I guess. And the dungeon master can shape his game however, you know, he or she wants. If they want to have it as wizards only, they just say at their table, hey, for my game, wizards only. Not a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Players who want to play with that old lore, there's nothing to stop them, but it needs to be accessible to everybody. Well, since we're on the, since we've gotten into the, the topic of the Mages of High Sorcery, let's quickly take a look at the way that Mages of High Sorcery is presented in the Unearthed Arcana. So it is no longer the Wizards of High Sorcery, it's the Mages of High Sorcery. And to any Dragonlance neophytes who might be listening, it can be confusing that it's the Wizards of High Sorcery, that they're wizards and they're also sorcerers. The words are kind of used interchangeably in the old books. Um, it changes once we get into the Fifth Age. But for our purposes, just ignore the fact that they include the word sorcery in there. It, it was wizards in the original conception. But now they're trying to open it up to everybody with this Mages of High Sorcery, so any kind of magic user in theory could be could be a member of this order. It gives you a vehicle to join the order through the rules here. So what you would do initially, no matter what class you are, if you want to be 
a mage of high sorcery, you choose the initiate of high sorcery background. Yeah, mage of high sorcery background. Yeah, you choose the mage of high sorcery background, and that gets you the initiate of high sorcery feature at level one, which basically means you've got your foot in the door um, at the mages of high sorcery. And then when you get to level four, you can choose a related feat. You can become either an adept of the white robes, which is the good wizards, an adept of the red robes, which is the neutral wizards, or an adept of the black robes, which is the evil wizards. And this gives you certain advantages and certain abilities, depending on what you choose. Well, okay, so here's a question. is We're looking at the um, adept feats. Notice that they have alignments, and notice that neutral wizards, or whatever your class is, can be any of the three robes. That's very interesting. I think I think that's fun, and also backed up in the novels. <laughs> Whenever you look at people like Garand uh, Dathan from the Defenders of Magic trilogy, he was on the fence about white or red robes. What it opens up is the idea of being able to play a black robe within the party, but not being evil and doing evil things. You know, you just kind of like their ways of teaching a little bit better. So you can be a neutral aligned character that the player plays as being having a neutral outlook on the world, but they have access to the black robe feet. Yep. Or the white robe. Yeah, you could go in reverse and have a neutral character. They're not a goody two-shoes, but they get access to the white robe spells. Yeah. See, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I have mixed feelings. I see where it really opens up the black robes, but it also, the traditionalist in me kind of prefers neutral characters just being red robes. Yeah, I, I call that the the white robe necromancer, the trope that we go into on all the chat channels. The idea is that can you ever have a white robe necromancer? And if you're really hardcore about it, no, necromancy is clearly black magic, and you cannot have a white a, a white robe wizard doing that. That's just wrong. Someone will come by and kick your butt doing it. But then I'm going like, well, what if I'm like a doctor type person? And necromancy is my access to providing health care for everyone. I really care about making people healthier and I use necromancy to understand that. And yet, will people start raving crazy over that, over that concept in itself? And audience, please put in, you know, put in your opinions about that because it's always fun to see how one way, one people will want. We're getting into the nuances of this as a background with feats to finding the wizards um, or the mages of high sorcery. In the Dragonlance Nexus Castle House Patches of Everything, we didn't go this route. We didn't go with the route of feat trees, which I know a lot of people out there are really disliking. But the Dragonlance Nexus chose to use the uh, the Dungeon um, Master's Guidebook on you know, renowned features. You have a faction, the faction will be white robes, and you could be someone who's like leaning a little bit toward neutral, but he's part of the order. The order knows him as, as more of the white robe. Um, it allows you to play a raceland who's leaning toward the black robes, but he's still red because the, the red robe faction knows him as a red robe. They don't know quite know him as a black robe yet. That allows, I, in my opinion, freedom of role play. Yeah, I feel like that uh, alignment 
restriction, you know, loosening the alignment restrictions is, is probably a good thing. You know, I can be a lawful neutral guy, but I'm super ambitious and I want to delve into black robes are about power and control. And I feel like a, you know, a lawful neutral character can be that way and, you know, maybe choose to go down the path of the, of the black robes. But my big issue with this is I, well, I have, two big issues with what they put in here. First, I, I like Weldon said, I hate feet trees. I, I really think it was the worst aspect of third edition and it, tying feats in with backgrounds, I think is a bad idea. Also, I think this is a misuse of backgrounds in general because a background is supposed to be something, you know, whatever you are in the mundane side of your life right where you come from and it seems like wizards of high sorcery and when we talk about knights of solemnia too the same thing applies is that that's you're now an adventurer that's an organization you join because it supports your adventuring life and i don't think that's the way backgrounds were fundamentally designed to be I disagree a little bit with the idea that your background has to be what you did before you became an adventurer, because there are wizards of high sorcery, mages of high sorcery that just stay in the tower their whole lives and just do magical research. But then there's special ones like Raceland who go out and go adventuring. The same thing with Knights of Slamnia. There's knights like Gunthar who just run the knighthood organization. And then there's knights like Sturm who go out and go adventuring. I think that the background of being a squire of the Knights of Slamnia or being an initiate of the Mages of High Sorcery, that's kind of those people who just who don't go out into the world, don't go adventuring. And that's what you start as if you're an adventurer, but then you you progress. I think it works. I like it. I, I saw an interview recently with uh, Jeremy Crawford where he talked about some of this. You know, one aspect, he did talk about the feed trees, and he's well aware that many people didn't care for... Um, just how big they could get in third edition. And so, you know, he's of a mind to kind of meet in the middle and say, okay, you can go up to fourth level on your tree, but no more past that. So there's a limit there. Keep in mind, too, that the Strixhaven book, that one had backgrounds given a uh, feat. So that this is modeled straight after that. Yeah, and I didn't like it there either. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that Jeremy Crawford mentioned was that they're kind of looking at backgrounds now and maybe thinking a bit about providing more of a mechanical benefit. You know, the idea being that, okay, you get your background, now how does that help you out as you level up? Well, it doesn't really, except for a couple skill proficiencies. Regarding the background, I, I felt if you wanted to have something like that, the, the compromise would be turning your background into more of, you know, a tradition. Like, for example, with Stern, if you want to give him the knight's background instead of him going out and adventuring, I would argue that he's from a, a well-known family. I would argue that you would want, you would want someone with this, um, you know, sorcery, with mages of high sorcery background. I would equate that as something of, uh, like someone who has been to Harvard, who has gone, and his father came, went to Harvard, and uh, you know, as a legacy, he's got a special advantage going into Harvard just because he's got a family of like you know seven generations of like you know high bred Harvard people going in there. 
I could see that as a better description of the background and how it turns into something that becomes uh, a tool of power that advances you because, you know, I can go to someone and say, I'm a legacy guy. I've known all the traditions. My parents are both Harvard fans and I've gone to every Harvard game that there has ever existed, you know, and I have a special rivalry with, you know, whoever's the opposite of Harvard. You know, I can see that. But you also have to consider that you, you start in the knighthood or you start in the mages of high sorcery young. You don't spend five years being an acolyte and then go to into one of these orders. Okay, so let let me ask a question here. We assume that for the most part, most characters are going to start out at, in one of these organizations, but that's not necessarily the case. For example, let's say that I am a human fighter. I've been adventuring. I've got a knight buddy of mine. And he dies in battle. His sacrifice has inspired me to go on and to be a better person. And so I then apply to the knighthood. I'm fourth level at this point, or say fifth level. Do you have to have the background to join the knighthood or no? This has been a topic that I know like Chuck and I have discussed, and we have very different opinions on it. The Knight of Salomnia background, that gives you the Squire of Salomnia feat. Now, Chuck maintains that the only way you can get that feat is through the background. I maintain that the prerequisites do not say that at all. The prerequisite says Squireship and the Knights of Salomnia. I could be a 6th level fighter who joins the Knights of Salomnia and becomes a Squire at that point. Well... I would tell you, I think probably the way it's presented, I totally see where Chuck is coming from on this. I don't think it matters because Watsy doesn't tell me how to run my table when I DM. So I'm not going to force a character to take a bunch of feats. You know, we're creating fifth level characters for my campaign. You want to play a Knight of Slamnia? I'm not going to make you have this background and I'm not going to make you have, you know, these feats and use up those precious resources by forcing you into a feat tree the way it is presented here yeah they're expecting this is how you join the knights of salamnia it's just not a practical expectation that that's the way people are going to play when they sit down to play yeah right now in in the outer world people who have seen this who are not dragonlands fans and you know there is this is actually a a question that should probably go to sage advice um up at wizards of the coast because that's been that's been argued back and forth. I know Chuck's view, and I understand that these these rules are kind of like an addendum on top of the general rules. So general rules in the uh, in the uh, in the player's handbook says you can choose anything at fourth level, at fourth level, you can choose a feat. But this one, as an addendum, overrules it. Yeah, specific rules trump general rules. <laughs> yeah, but I've seen the exact same counter argument in this. Talk because they said, well, look in back in the Arcana article, they have feet rules, and in the feet rule, they also say that feats are available whenever you normally choose a feat. So they're putting equal rate on the player's handbook versus the UA. So other rule lawyers have argued, no, you can take this feat at fourth level, and then you are now a part of the group. You just don't have the background, and you had to wait four levels to get there. Well, let's switch over quickly to the um, Knights of Slamnia because we're already got our we've already dipped our feet into that pool. 
So the Knights of Salamnia, as they're presented in the Unearthed Arcana, function similarly to the Mages of High Sorcery, where you choose your background, you get an initial feat at level one just by virtue of of choosing that background. And then at level four, you can become either a Knight of the Crown, a Knight of the Sword, or a Knight of the Rose. And in theory, you can join another order as well as, as you progress. So if you get to what is it, level eight, when you pick your second feat, you could then you could be a Knight of the Sword and a Knight of the Rose and get access to both of their features. The other thing, too, is feats are supposed to be an optional role. Now, there is some talk that this may change as they're headed to this revised version of D&D they're coming out with in a couple of years. But as it stands now, it's optional. So suddenly it's not so optional in Dragonlance, or you just ignore this and say your character joins the orders. I just feel like rank and renown handles this way better. Like I mean, it just makes way more sense. And I honestly tying feats in with backgrounds just seems like power creep that we've seen in earlier editions. And it usually signals the beginning of the end of that edition. I think they made this change because they don't want to lock players in to this, this chain of different orders. So I think it's the direction that what Dungeons and Dragons is going in. And I think that these rules reflect that and it might break some of the Dragonlance lore. But like I said, with the mages, it's it's necessary in order to make Dragonlance accessible for new fans. Ultimately, that's a positive. We want to keep that tradition going and we still can by playing in our own games. But Dragonlance needs to change with the times. There's a little sidebar thing here. What it amounts to is that you never forget the training you've had previously, so you always have the benefits of any of the feats you've had from previous orders, but you're only a member of one order at a time. So, But what's interesting here is that you don't have to take crown, then sword, then rose. It's always been this thing, you know, back in Dragonlance Adventures, Tales of the Lance, the Dragonlance campaign setting, you had to... If you want to be part of the sword, you went from crown to sword. If you want to be rose, you had to go crown, sword, rose. The novels do not reflect that. That's something that has been in the game only. And it certainly was confusing with the Rise of Salomnia trilogy. And, and the thought lately that a lot of us have had is that it's it'd be better if you're a squire than you picked. You know, Do I go to crown? Do I go to sword? Do I go to rose? And I kind of like the idea that maybe, for example, you're you're a noble and you're kind of groomed to go into Rose, but after being in Rose for a while, you say, no, I, I think one of these other orders fits me better. And then you switch to that order. I seem to recall somewhere in the Margaret Weiss production stuff, the third edition that you had an option somehow of switching back. But yeah, I clearly think looking at the way they present it here, you can go from Squire directly to Rose. That breaks tons of Dragonlance traditions, but it aligns better with the Rise of Salamia, where the orders were specifically split up through their, you know, eventual corruption. And, and the, the different groups never talk to each other. I think you're right. And I think it, the way it's presented in the novels is that like, just like in real life military organizations, it's not necessarily the per- person with the highest rank who's in charge, although that happens a lot. It's, you know, people are put in positional, like what they call situational authority. Like 
this is a guy who has the most experience doing this thing. He is the one in charge, right? He's he's the commander, and everybody has to listen to this guy. I think whenever you have mixes of crown sword and rose knights, you'll have one guy who's put in charge, maybe based upon his his leadership experience or whatever. So I don't think one group has authority over another group in any way. Well, which was always confusing because, you know, you could have, say, a captain of the crown, a captain of the sword, and a captain of the rose, and they should be equivalent in ranks. But at the same time, more rank, more weight was placed on rose than the other two, and more weight was put on sword than crown. Uh, well, actually, men who would be knights of the crown did not follow the orders of the knight of the rose. They followed the orders of their immediate commander. If someone were to pull rank, like, you know, Alfred, Sir Alfred or Sir Derek, they would be able to pull the crown knights and say, I order you to go out charge out into death with me. But the crown knights, being completely a separate group, they could defy that order. They're in their own group. The the knights of the sword and the knights of the rose could not command them to do anything. I, I feel that they were actually separate orders. Well, it's definitely made clear in this in this uh, Unearthed Arcana that one does not necessarily outrank the other. Right, and I'm glad to see this change because it avoids things like in 3rd edition where you had the Knight of the Rose who was a spellcaster because the Sword Knights are spellcaster and you had to go from one prestige class to another to another. Uh, this is just another thing, I think, too, to eliminate confusion that rank and renown... The faction rules in the DMG just work better. I agree with you, Tim. I, I, it's all how you present it. Like you can actually split it up as you know their their own individual factions, but you can also say part of your renown is that you were. A so if you wanted to join into the Knights of the Sword, being the crown already is kind of like stacking your favor. You get bonus points to join the club. You know, that kind of thing. Same thing with the Knights of the Rose. If you go through the crown and the sword to enter the Rose, the Rose Knights will look at you and go, like, yeah, you've kind of done your duty going through those other seeing how they're just not as good as the Rose Knights. You just want to join us. Okay, you know, bonus points for you, and you've got the three extra renowned points you needed to join our order. Go. That's all, you know, the role-playing aspect that, you know, the factions could easily cover. Let's move to our last segment here, and that's the Divine Communications and Divinely Favored feats. So we have Divinely Favored, which allows you to cast the... uh, This is a feat. Divinely Favored is a feat that allows you to cast the Thaumaturgy Cantrip and one first-level spell based on the alignment of your character. If you have the Divinely Favored feat, you can get access to the Divine Communications feat that gives you um, an increase to a ability score. It lets you learn Celestial and two other languages. And it lets you do something a little bit strange, which is cast Augury and Commune without a spell slot, but you have to finish one D4 long rest before you can use it again. That's pretty different. I've never seen that in 5th edition that I can think of off the top of my head. Does anybody have any strong feelings about these feats one way or the other? They're, they seem pretty lukewarm to me. Just a way to give martial characters access to a couple simple divine spells. That seems like that's all it is. You know, the rules aren't in here yet, but I am looking at divine communication as literally the Knights of Tekesis and their vision. I mean, I, I'm just looking at that going like, you know, the knights had direct contact with Takesis, and she basically presented her vision, her general plan 
on how to conquer everything. And so they obviously seem to be doing a commune, like, Jesus, tell me what you need. And, you know, they get the vision that was going to be their actions to kick butt under their goddess's rules. I kind of like this being what it is because that's how, that's how I feel like this should have been something that you kind of tack on to the, to the Knights of Tequesis. That's interesting. I mean, there's no, there's no mention of the Knights of Tequesis anywhere. And if, if they do release a book and that book is centered on the War of the Lance, then there wouldn't be Knights of Tequesis yet, which is a bummer because I really love the Knights of Tequesis. They're the most interesting thing about fifth edition or fifth, the fifth age, rather, I think is, or the Knights of Tequesis. These also kind of harken another thing from the fifth age is like divine champions or a chosen of the gods or something like that, that seemed to be a thing like Ferris. What's his name? Uh, Didroka. You know, Sargonis comes to him and says, you're my champion, right? And so it's a little unclear what special things he gets, but, um, but this kind of harkens in my mind what they tried to do in third edition with, uh, with that divine champion idea. All right. Does anybody have any final thoughts on this, uh, on this, on Arthur Arcana that they'd like to share? I know Tim, Tim might say, no feet trees, use renown, please. Please no feet trees. Yeah, <laughs> I've had it with feet trees, and I don't. I, I just don't want backgrounds to be a vehicle for gaining feats. Trampus, do you have any final thoughts? I think it's a good start. I, I like where the mages of high sorcery are going overall. Uh, I kind of question whether the feats and feet trees are the best way to go with the organizations, but I got a strong feeling that's the way they'll end up going. I I'm not a fan of the divine feats and the Kinder God love them they need a little work so we'll we'll see I I have high hopes in the uh, survey process. Well then, how about you? The Kinder has got a lot of different things that I've seen that needs the work. My biggest worry is obviously is Kinder Aces, but we kind of skipped over the Kinder Tom. And my main grave, I've always added in, in those rules, there was immunity. But, you know, if you were able to survive a Kendra taunt, you would have, you know, 24 hours not being affected by another Kendra taunt because you resisted. You know, it kind of makes your, um, you know, friends of Kendra, uh, friends of Kendra basically, you know, a little bit immune. They, they gave the ability to like, you know, calmly, not get upset when they're being like told that their you know butt is smelly or whatever. Um, I like the Dragonlance Nexus rules because part of the creation of the Kindred and those rules were how do we make this less destructive in a person you know PC versus PC fight if a fight breaks out. I think uh, that you should probably go see the um, the pouches of everything. Um, hopefully, there'll be a link on it. In a- and yeah review it and don't be afraid to comment on whether you like it or not if you think some of the rules are a little bit healthy let us know and for my final thoughts uh, I'm pretty much in agreement with Trampus a lot of what's presented here I am in favor of I view it as a positive change I feel like Dragonlance is moving in a good direction to enter the fifth edition era, so to speak. I think that everybody Dragonlance fans are just going to have to to accept that the official fifth edition Dragonlance is not going to look so much like the Dragonlance that we all know and love, 
but that's okay. Things change. It, it's good to try new things. It's good to move in new directions. You can always play the way you want on your table. You can always use Tass's pouches of everything if you want to keep more aligned with more traditional rules. But I think overall, everything here is pretty good. But like Trampus said, things just need a little bit of work, especially the Kender and the Feet Trees. I don't have a strong, I, I didn't play third edition, so I don't have strong feelings on Feet Trees. I think this is fine. I think Renown would have been fine too. I like the way that you guys did it in Tass's Pouches of Everything. I like the way that they do Renown and Ravnica for the guilds. But I think this is really straightforward and that's probably what they wanted to go with. So I think I will sign us off for now. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please be sure to check us out at DragonlanceNexus.com. Follow us on Twitter at DLNexus. You can also follow our Twitch channel and our YouTube channel, which are both Dragonlance Nexus. And I'm going to include links in the show notes for all of these, so it's okay if you don't remember it. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you when we get back to Kryn. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Have a good night. 